0: Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning, I'm James Holman from the Washington Post and this is the Daily 202 for Friday, January 24th. In today's news, Texas may have a case of the coronavirus on its hands. The Trump administration's war of attrition is thinning the ranks of government scientists And Anita Hill says it's too late for Joe Biden to apologize as Kamala Harris looks to bolster her standing in the Veepstakes. But first, the big idea. House impeachment managers laid out the heart of their abusive power case against President Trump yesterday, charging that his efforts to pressure Ukraine into political investigations were precisely what the nation's founders wanted to guard against – When they empowered Congress to remove a president from office. The Democrats also detailed their defense of Joe Biden's actions regarding Ukraine in anticipation that it will be a major portion of the White House's defense next week, saying Biden's actions were in line with official U.S. policy at the time and not done to benefit an energy company connected to his son. But a significant number of Senate Republicans remained unmoved and downplayed the case from House managers, dismissing it as repetitive and unpersuasive, as they sought to counter the Democratic narrative at a time when Trump's lawyers must stay silent in the Senate chamber. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler, the New York Democrat who led the case on Thursday, cited abuse, betrayal, and corruption as not only the offenses that the framers feared the most when they drafted the Constitution, but also those alleged abuses are at the core of Trump's dealings with Ukraine. During his arguments, Nadler drew liberally, from past comments made by key Trump allies, including Senator Lindsey Graham, Attorney General Bill Barr, and Trump defense team lawyer Alan Dershowitz, who have all argued in the past that there does not have to be a statutory crime committed in order to impeach a president. In one of several video clips played on the Senate floor during the trial, Graham, then serving as a House manager in Bill Clinton's 1999 impeachment, defined high crimes much more loosely than he does now as one of Trump's staunchest defenders. Nadler played a video of Graham standing exactly where he was standing at that very moment, 21 years before, saying that a president who uses his office for personal gain has committed a high crime. Graham later told reporters in the hallway outside the well of the Senate that the use of his previous comments was fair game. Then he said he's urged the White House to do the same with Democrats when Trump's lawyers begin their defense of the president. For example, Graham noted that the Trump team should play video clips of Nadler attacking him for being overzealous by trying to impeach the president back in 1999. Nadler made the case to the Senate that it would be unreasonable to expect Congress to envision all types of potential presidential corruption and pass laws explicitly forbidding it. Though the Republicans' top desired witness remains Hunter Biden, Graham told reporters yesterday that scrutinizing the former vice president's son, and his service on the board of Burisma, the Ukrainian gas company, would be better handled through the traditional oversight process than by calling him as a witness in the trial. The Bidens played a surprisingly prominent role in the House Democratic arguments. Congresswoman Sylvia Garcia, a Democrat from Texas, one of the other impeachment managers, sought to debunk the allegations that Joe Biden did anything nefarious, She detailed at great length how the former vice president's efforts to oust the then-Ukrainian prosecutor general, Viktor Shokin, were in line with official U.S. policy and supported by international allies. Garcia even read aloud a 2016 letter from two Republican senators who were sitting there as she read it, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin and Rob Portman from Ohio, both members of the Ukraine caucus. They called for getting rid of Shokin at the time and supported the Obama administration's efforts in that regard. As Garcia read the letter, a visibly upset and red-faced Johnson rose from his seat, approached Portman, and whispered in his ear. Portman reacted impassively, but his comments didn't appear to calm Johnson, who then departed the floor for the Republican cloakroom. Johnson, a fierce ally of Trump, said in October that he does not recall signing the letter, Portman took the lead. Then Republican senators like Ted Cruz responded to the Democratic focus on the Bidens by saying that that makes the former vice president and his son fair game for Trump's defense team to go after them and for GOP senators to vote to call them as witnesses, potentially. Before the trial officially started on Thursday afternoon, dozens of senators from both parties entered a secure facility in the Senate basement to view a classified document provided by Jennifer Williams, a national security advisor to Vice President Pence. The document was made available under an agreement between Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer. It had previously been submitted to the House Intelligence Committee, but has not been widely shared. Some senators spent only a few minutes in the facility. Others stayed for the better part of an hour. Several Democrats emerged to say that they don't understand why the document remains classified. Dick Durbin, the number two Senate Democrat, said as he walked out of the skiff that it's clearly not being withheld from the public for national security reasons. He said after reading the document that he thinks it's being withheld for what he called political security reasons. The Democratic House managers will wrap up their case this afternoon. Trump's team will then launch its defense of the president on Saturday, with the key question of whether the Senate will subpoena new witnesses or documents to be decided and voted upon around the middle of next week. McConnell's team is feeling good right now that he can whip the votes, to prevent any witnesses from being summoned or documents from being requested. But everyone is keeping a close eye, both sides, on Tennessee Republican Senator Lamar Alexander, who could offer the decisive fourth vote to make it happen. Alexander is retiring this year. The other Republicans everyone's watching are Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, Susan Collins from Maine, and Mitt Romney from Utah. Democrats need four Republicans to cross over. The Senate may only come in to session for a few hours on Saturday morning rather than spending a full day on the trial. Senior GOP officials say this is because Trump doesn't want much of his defense to be aired on Saturday when he thinks the public will be more focused on their weekend plans rather than watching the news. The four Democratic senators running for president also want to be able to hold campaign events on Saturday evening in the early states. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this week comes to an end. Number one, a young, healthy man from Wuhan and a person living 1,500 miles from the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak are among the latest victims. The outbreak has incited fear and anger across China as the important spring festival, the Lunar New Year, gets underway. Reports of eight new deaths overnight from the pneumonia-like virus, taking the total to 26, came as authorities enforced a lockdown across large parts of the province of Hubei, population 59 million. But they also came as the medical system clearly struggled to cope with the outbreak, with rampant reports of crowded hospitals, overstressed doctors, and dwindling medical supplies. Adding to the stress, Friday is the official start of China's celebration of the Lunar New Year. Authorities around the country, including in the capital, Beijing, have canceled the temple fairs and festivals that accompany the holiday to avoid any large public gatherings where the airborne virus could spread. The Forbidden City in Beijing, which can admit 80,000 people a day and was already entirely sold out for the holiday, has been closed until further notice. All schools and universities are also shut down. Showing how different their authoritarian system is than ours, The communist government has also postponed the release of seven new blockbuster films that were set to be released over the holiday weekend, leading Chinese cinema companies to shutter all 70,000 of that country's movie theaters. The regime's National Health Commission reported a few hours ago that there are now more than 830 confirmed cases of infection, and reports of new cases continue to roll in from around the country, from Xinjiang in the west to Shandong in the east. From Inner Mongolia in the north to Hainan in the south, a total of 8,420 people are reported to be under observation in China. And remember what I reported yesterday our American medical experts believe that the Chinese are deliberately undercounting their death toll. And South Korean authorities have confirmed in the last few hours that a second person tested positive for the coronavirus. Japan has also confirmed a second case a man in his 40s who was visiting Wuhan a few weeks ago. Other countries that have reported infections now include Thailand, Singapore, Vietnam, and unfortunately, the United States. In addition to the confirmed case in Washington state, Texas is reporting a potential case of coronavirus in Brazos County, which is about 100 miles northwest of Houston. The patient contracted a respiratory illness within two weeks of traveling in Wuhan. The CDC has deployed a rapid response team, and the man is being isolated in his home. Some of the details that are being released from China are raising new concerns about the virus's ability to spread. Until now, the vast majority of the people who have died have been older than 60, and almost all of them had long health problems. Indeed, all of them had also been in the Hubei province. But the latest announcement said that a 36-year-old from Wuhan, identified only by his family named Lee, who's just died, had no chronic diseases or any pre-existing health conditions and he'd been treated with antivirus medication and antibiotics since being admitted to the hospital on January 9th. But the medicine did no good, and now he's gone. Wall Street stumbled yesterday amid fears that efforts to curtail this virus could disrupt the global economy. Number two, dozens of government computers sit in a nondescript federal building in Kansas City, Missouri. They're programmed to connect to a data model That could help farmers manage the impact of a changing climate on their crops. The problem though is that no one who works in the building knows how to access or use the model, and if they did, what to do with the data. That's because the federal researcher who created the program in Washington quit rather than move his whole family to Missouri when the agriculture department relocated his agency there last fall. He's one of hundreds of scientists across the federal government who have been forced out, sidelined, or muted since Trump took office and launched a war of attrition against federal scientists. In the first two years of the Trump administration, more than 1,600 federal scientists have left government, according to new data from the Office of Personnel Management. That represents a 1.5% drop, compared with an 8% increase during the same period in the Obama administration. Number three, Kamala Harris is seriously weighing an endorsement of Joe Biden to boost her chances of becoming his vice president. The New York Times reports today that this could help Biden, but it could also anger Harris's liberal base back in California. An endorsement would reportedly be unlikely until after the Senate trial concludes. You might recall how hard Harris ripped Biden during that first debate over busing and school integration. She said so memorably, that little girl was me. But Harris has worked hard to ingratiate herself into Biden world since she dropped out. The two had a long private conversation in the immediate aftermath of her departure, and they've stayed in touch. Meanwhile, last night in Iowa, Anita Hill told a crowd that it is too late for Biden to apologize for the way he mistreated and diminished her when she came forward in 1991 to testify against Clarence Thomas. The statute of limitations for his apology is up, Hill said in response to a question from a member of the audience at the University of Iowa, where she gave a lecture on ending sexual harassment. Hill said she wants to hear more on what Biden would do to, quote, prevent this from happening to another generation of women. She said she not only wants to hear about that from Biden, but all of the candidates. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, January 24th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can subscribe to a podcast feed from The Washington Post with all our updates in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. Find it at WashingtonPost.com podcasts.